Bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family in a unity that you've provided for each one of us to enjoy, along with a faith given to us by grace, Father. May we each be encouraged by our presence uh, here with each other this evening. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for your grace, your mercy, your love, and in the way that it's unerring and so uh, wonderful to behold, Father, in time. We pray for those that, due to sickness or what have you, Father, can't be with us this evening. And we pray, of course, for those that are still lost. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, part 61. I want to begin with some Old Testament scripture, scripture that we went to on Tuesday. Go to Psalm 107.1. 107.1. Psalm 107, verse 1. <clears throat> Wonderful scripture. And uh, the Spirit's going to bring this out again this evening. It's been a theme now for a while. That God is immutable. That God is the same regardless of administration or so-called dispensation. Uh, God's heart is the same. God's treatment of mankind is the same. Um, we call that immutability. Psalm 107, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary, and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an uh, in, inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. And here's the theme in this wonderful chapter in the Old Testament, verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. Up here on the board, I'll give you the amplified of verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distresses. Just a, another word to think about, a little bit more colorful, I think. He rescued them from their distresses. Verse 7, he led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he humbled their heart with labor, they stumbled, and there was none to help. And so we see this idea that he humbles us, that he's uh, intent on seeing 
humility in us so that he can grace us out. So therefore, he humbled their heart with labor, even gave the cause for humility. They stumbled, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord. In their trouble, he saved them out of their distresses. Again, same theme. So do you see a pattern developing here? Jump forward to verse 19. Verse 19. Again, more distress on the horizon. What does the Bible say for the third time in verse 19? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. And then one more instance of this overarching pattern, and at this juncture we can call it a theme in this chapter. Go to verse 27. Verse 27. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man, and they were at their wit's end. Some of you were saying, yep, been there. Huh. Been at my wit's end. And what do you do? What's the righteous thing to do? What's the humble thing to do? They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. In other words, that's his pattern. That's that pattern of humility and then grace. Humility followed by grace. We cry out to the Lord in our trouble, and he delivers us from our distress. If we take the load on ourselves, what does he do? He says, go ahead then. I'll let you hit your wit's end. I'll let you continue until you're exhausted. And some of you can relate. Uh, but when you turn around, um, as a good father, I will pick you back up when you're humble. So they cried again to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. The psalmist concludes this amazingly edifying chapter with a capstone statement. Go to verse 41. Verse 41. And if you remember on Sunday, the pivot word was need or needy. The fact that needy uh, requires humility. Verse 41. But he sets the needy securely on high away from affliction and makes his families like a flock. The upright see it and are glad, but all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. So what we see in Psalm 107 is a clear picture of God's heart. What we see in Psalm 107 is a clear picture of God's heart. Those who cry out to him, he responds. We cry out in humility, he responds and delivers by grace. And so 107 is a wonderful um, description or an illustration of God's grace. So again, this is a clear picture of God's heart. It is entirely God's character to save those in need. That's something that is throughout the entire Bible. It is entirely God's character to save those in need need. In fact, it's the primary evidence we have of his amazing grace. It's the primary evidence we have of his amazing grace, that he saves those in need. 
We received a nice quote on Tuesday regarding Psalm 107 from Martin Lloyd-Jones up here on the board. God's salvation is available for all who realize their distress and who are anxious to be delivered out of the hands of the enemy that holds them in such terrible bondage. Again, God's salvation is available for all who realize their distress and who are anxious to be delivered out of the hands of the enemy that holds them in such terrible bondage. So I think this one chapter describes the character of God in salvation so well that it's difficult to imagine any other way of perceiving it. That is God's nature or God's character regarding salvation, that he sees a need, that there's a humble, uh, if you would, a repentant heart towards it, and he delivers the individual. So, to the glory of his word, what I see is 100% consistent with any and all New Testament scripture. When I read Psalm 107, it's the same God that I read about in the New Testament. You choose the chapter and verse. I don't care because God is consistent. Old Testament, New Testament, people have gotten wildly crazy. And I think it has a lot to do with um, the pervasiveness of, in the sharing even, of man-made theology. That people now read and claim theology of men rather than of the singular God of the universe. The one that's the same throughout Old Testament, New Testament. You choose. You choose. It's gotten so wildly out of control that people claim that, you know, in the Old Testament there was hardly any grace. And it's only the New Testament because, you know, that's the dispensation of grace. Well, that's a huge misnomer in my book. Because when I read the Old Testament, all I ever see is grace and mercy. I mean, these people were knuckleheads over and over and over again. And they would cry out, and what would he do faithfully? He would save them. He would deliver them. How's that any different than what we read about in the New Testament? It's not. And that's what we would expect from an immutable God. Our God is a God of grace, regardless of dispensation, administration, or economy, which means that we are able to read our Bibles without being confused. Remember, there was a time back in the day when I was first starting out, I was almost shy about reading the Old Testament. Almost shy about it. Again, what we are able to read in our Bibles without being confused points to the simple fact that God is immutable. Up here in the board, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Then why are so many Christians confused? Why are people shy about reading the Old Testament? Why would we ever suspect that our God is in the business of confusing us? Why would we have to have a Ph.D. or a D.D. or even an M.S. or whatever you want to call it to be able to figure out the things of God? The simple fact of the matter is we don't. Think of who Jesus chose to deliver his message. Fishermen. 
They were called the uneducated group. Those were the apostles. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you do not need. As a matter of fact, I'll even go one step further and say chances are if you have a DD from some seminary or something, you're probably going to have to unlearn an awful lot of things because you've gotten way overcomplicated. And that's how you end up with doctrines that don't jive, that don't fit, that make you uncomfortable. None of this should be uncomfortable. The greatest discomfort you might have when reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but also the New, is that you don't understand necessarily the culture. Some of the cultural references or the nuances or the idioms that are used. That's a different story than not understanding the character and nature of God. Our God is not a God of confusion. He wants us to know Him. So that's a very important point as we continue on in our study because the deceitfulness of sin tends to complicate Him. Begins to draw lines in the sand that aren't actually there. Even make up doctrines. We call them the doctrines of demons. Pervert things, twist simple things and make them complicated. Again, our God is a God of grace regardless of dispensation, administration, or economy. For example, I want to read yet another Old Testament passage to establish something that Paul wrote on the board. First he wrote what? God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And also, I just lost my slides by the way. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Again, our God is a God of grace, regardless of dispensation, administration, or economy. Again, I want to read another Old Testament passage that speaks to the point on the board, as well as this point up here on the board. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. God does not want you to be confused about His grace. And let no one do that to you. Let no one dissuade you from reading the Old Testament. Let no one confuse you about God's character, His nature, the way He goes about answering a person that cries out in humility. Go to Psalm 84, verse 1. Psalm 84, verse 1. I just want to read another Old Testament passage now to complement what we just read in Psalm 107 and also what we just noted with New Testament references. Psalm 84, 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Salah. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, 
in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Salah. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Here's the key point. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Sound familiar? James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what I read when I read verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord God gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That is literally consistent with James 4, 6. Do you see a different God? I don't. Different dispensation, big deal. Different situation, big deal. Big deal. It's the same God, though. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Again, the same thing in the New Testament. <laughs> Again, the Old Testament is no different in its depiction of God than the New Testament. Up here on the board, the God of all grace. We are saved by grace in every sense of the phrase. We know that we are saved daily. We know also that we are delivered from our woes, our distresses, as we just noted. We are saved by grace in every sense of the phrase, beginning with salvation proper, of course. There is no movement away from sin that isn't empowered by God personally. The only part man plays is, cry, is in crying out for his mercy. And you know, this isn't a, you know, every time you're beating your breasts like the individual in Luke 18.13 there is the reference. This means that you're crying out to him. You are in a state of despair. You have nowhere else to go but to God. That's what true humility looks like. You're not trying to compliment him in any way. You're not saying, well, I got up 10%. I just need, to, I need you to lift me up to extra 90. Or I crawled up 90%. I just need you for the last 10%. None of that. That's all garbage. The only part that man ever plays in his own salvation, whether you're talking about salvation proper or deliverance after, is to cry out for his mercy and his grace. That's it. That's the end of the story. We are saved by grace in every sense of the phrase, beginning with salvation proper. There is no movement away from sin that isn't empowered by God personally. The only part man plays is in crying out for his mercy. That's why we have passages like Luke 18, 13 recorded in the New Testament. But we also see the equivalent of that in Psalm 107, for example or Psalm 84, as we just read, or anywhere in the Old Testament. It's the same God. It's the same baseline problem since the fall in the garden. Man is man is man. The problem has been the same. Now, <clears throat> as I was listening to Tuesday's message, I heard the same vein of 
defensiveness. And this is going to, tonight's message is slightly complex, but please don't blame me. I heard the same vein of defensiveness in the Spirit's voice as I felt coursing through me on Sunday. In other words, when, <clears throat> when an outside influence attempts to pervert the simple things of God, like I just described, how simple God is, He's immutable, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's that simple. The way He delivers us is the same pattern. Old Testament, New Testament, does not matter, always by grace, always on the coattails or predicated on the humility of his creatures. Always that way. And so whenever someone or something tries to dismantle that simple understanding of God's grace, uh, a communicator is going to get defensive. The spirit is not going to stand by idly. Not from a pulpit, anyways. So this defense is against what I'll call anti-grace, quote, grace teaching. Anti-grace, quote, grace teaching. In other words, it's called grace teaching, but it's actually anti-grace. And so there's this whole issue when something gets perverted and as I've taught you for years now, one of the quickest, easiest, dirtiest, most underhanded ways that Satan can undermine us, our faith, is by redefining things. Take a keystone word in the Bible and pervert the definition and set that out as truth. That's why I call it anti-grace, quote, grace teaching. This is a deception of the highest order, but it's uniquely difficult to explain because of the masterful job Satan's done with perverting God's grace. Let me see if I can explain this. I, I warn you, it's difficult, and I'm probably going to fail you somehow along the way. If the Bible teaches us that all aspects of conversion are God's to enact, this leaves no room for man's personal work. Agree? Everything that has to do with taking a dead creature and making him new so that he can bring glory to God has to be by the grace of God. Amen? Okay. So it leaves no room it leaves no room for the work of men. So when I say all aspects, of course, I'm including things like repentance, saving faith, and even evidence of salvation. Allah, as we saw in 1 John chapter 3. So when we consider the full expanse of God's grace, it is all-encompassing. The truth is that it is entirely up to God to save a person. Now this is where it gets interesting. It is entirely up to God to save a person. Go to John 6.44. 
John 6.44, because if we're not careful, we can put God on a treadmill. We forget about the character and nature, and especially the sovereignty of God. Especially the sovereignty of God. Again, the truth is that it is entirely up to God to save a person. John 6, No one can come to me, Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What do we see there? No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, the sovereign God of the universe decides who he's going to save. We do not have the ability or the right to put God on a treadmill. So, being drawn to the Father implies a very important issue. That is, that a dead person can't move on his own. In other words, if he wants to draw you, he better, he better pick you up first, right? Because you sure in heck aren't going to get up from a position of death. So a dead person can't move on his own. And therefore, the only way a person is able to move towards God is if God enables said movement by grace. By grace. And, as we know from Holy Scripture, God gives grace to who? The humble. Hmm. So, the only person that will ever be drawn to God is the humble one. The only person that will ever be drawn to God is the humble one. This is precisely what we noted in our recent Old Testament passages like Psalm 107, for example. Let me give you that one slice there again, the Amplified, 107, verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distresses. So this is not new. This is not difficult to understand. This is how God operates. If he says, I'm going to draw you, I'm going to save you, I'm going to first pick you up, and I'm going to give you the ability to come towards me, because you're dead. Satan wants Christian churches in this world to be confused about this crying out. Satan wants Christian churches in this world to be confused about this crying out. And think about Luke uh, 18.13 as well. He's gone so far, Satan has gone so far to propose that crying out is a work of man towards his own salvation. For example, concentrate. Crying out is not the same thing as, quote, believing. Crying out is not the same thing 
as believing. Crying out implies some kind of reckoning with depravity. You get it? To cry out for mercy implies some kind of reckoning with depravity. It becomes, this reckoning becomes the motivating factor, in other words. So crying out implies some kind of reckoning with depravity, which, by the way, that whole thing, you ready? Because you're dead, all of that as well is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Sounds like a greater grace, doesn't it? Sounds like he's pretty intent on doing everything for those he draws to himself because he chooses because he's the sovereign God of the universe. So if you get it all right, if you understand God's grace, there's no room for the work of man. Believing as it pertains to salvation proper implies an understanding of a proposed solution to a given problem. In other words, I believe, God, that you can save me. I believe that you want to save me. I believe that you're able to save me because you, are, you know and I know that I can't do it myself. I believe that I can't do it myself. All of that is wrapped up into this idea of believing. To arrive at that point, there's some reckoning with depravity. In this way, crying out and believing are intrinsically bound in salvation, but they remain unique aspects of conversion. Let me give you an analogy. If I tell you to call the fire department right now because your house is on fire, and let's suppose your house is just across the street, say through that window right there, you can literally see it. Chances are you're going to look outside the window to validate my claim before you believe you need a solution to the problem. Correct? First thing you're going to do, you're going to run to the window, right? Is he, is he kidding? Is this for real? My house is on fire? First thing you're going to do is run to the window. Is there a problem? First of all. Is there a serious problem? So before you even believe you need a solution, you're going to validate. You're going to have a reckoning with a problem. Fair enough? Otherwise, you're never going to proceed. In other words, nobody says they believe in a solution if they don't first believe there is a problem. What is there to believe in if there isn't a perceived problem in the first place? Likewise, then, what value is, a, is so-called believing in Jesus Christ? I know a lot of people that say they believe in Jesus Christ, and they don't know him. There's a lot of people I've met. You know Jesus Christ? I believe in Jesus Christ. How is it um, you're going to be with me in heaven then? How are we going to fellowship with God? Well, I think I'm good enough. 
you know what? You don't believe in Jesus Christ then. You believe a different gospel from a different spirit. Your believing is vapid, is meaningless. You don't even understand the, the problem yet. So what value is so-called believing in Jesus Christ if an individual doesn't first fully reckon there's a real problem in the first place? And furthermore, what good is a solution to such a problem as a total depravity of unregenerate man if this same dead man must somehow get up and move himself towards God? In other words, if the only thing that really matters is this vapid form of believing, then getting up and, and being able to believe is a work of man. It's left out of the drawing of one to God. What good is a solution to such a problem as the total depravity of unregenerate man, if this same dead man must somehow get up and move himself towards God. The only option a person ever has is to cry out to God in their despair to do it all for them by grace. That's the only way. There is no other way. Again, this is the pattern we noted earlier up on the board. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distresses. To be more practical in terms of salvation proper, now pay attention here. Even a person who says, in an unrepentant arrogance, I believed, therefore I am saved is, if wholly dependent on this posture alone, unsaved. There's a thing called the sovereignty of God. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we don't get to put the sovereign on a treadmill. We don't, we're not in the position to make demands of God. Do you understand? That somehow is lost on churches nowadays. We have lost, as, a, as, the, as the churches plural, we have lost, not ours, I don't believe, not this pulpit, but many have lost a respect for the holy, sovereign God, our Creator. We're so ridiculously arrogant we have a little formula that says, well, I believed, so you have to save me. A person who says an unrepentant arrogance, I believe, therefore I am saved, is, if wholly dependent on this posture alone, unsaved. The subtlety of the unrepentant, arrogant person is that the power to save you ready? I told you it's going to be a little complicated, but this is what I'm dealing with. The subtlety of the unrepentant, arrogant person is that the power to save has been shifted to the individual, 
not their merciful creator. Do you understand? It's a power share. It's very subtle and very tricky. But that's what's being propagated in so-called Christian churches nowadays. We give the power to the person. We say, if you believe and that's it, you will be saved. Well, wait a minute, we've got to hold the, hold the presses here. What is it? What's behind believe? Believe in Jesus. Well, what did Jesus stand for? Because now his name is in question. What did Jesus say? Oh, don't worry about what Jesus said. That's not for you. What are you left with? A perversion. A lie. So the subtlety of the unrepentant, arrogant person is that the power to save has been shifted to the individual, not their merciful creator. In other words, they are the ones calling all the shots. They are the ones in the position of power. And they are the ones holding all the cards. This is the furthest posture from true humility. Do you really think that the man, the tax collector who was beating his breast, thought he was holding all the cards? You think the thief on the cross, do you think anybody that's ever truly been saved felt like they were holding all the cards? Or was there an actual reckoning and a crying out for mercy and grace for salvation to a sovereign God who can choose yea or nay? You see, that posture that, that is intrinsic to what I've been calling a watered-down gospel, I don't care what you call it, where the, the ends are chopped off of it, and all it's dealt with is the forensics of, say, Romans, justification by faith. Uh, that whole thing is a complete perversion. It's the furthest thing from true humility. It's a lesser grace, not a greater grace. As I wrote a few years back in the chapter titled Mercy Demands in my book, Covert Arrogance, we don't get to demand mercy from anyone, especially not from God. Being saved is merciful, is it not? Okay, you ready? Mercy is a grace gift. You don't get to say, hey, you have to give me mercy. That's an abomination of the definition of mercy, you see. Mercy is a grace gift. God gives mercy to who he gives mercy to because he's sovereign. We don't have the right to put him on a treadmill. <laughs> mercy is a grace gift. And being grace, it means that it cannot be earned or deserved. What the advocates of this so-called watered-down gospel, now listen, this is where it gets really complicated, but it's only complicated because of perversion. The gospel is very simple. It's been the same Old Testament, New Testament. It's very simple. We have a problem, God solves it. Amen? Okay. It only gets complicated when it's perverted. 
And that's what you read in Paul's voice in the epistles. So here we go again, got to deal with this. <laughs> what the advocates of a watered-down gospel actually promote, and I'm convinced most often out of ignorance, I'm not saying these people are doing things out of pure evil. <laughs> it's ignorance. The advocates of a watered-down gospel actually promote that some act of man, some, quote, belief vapid of any reckoning of one's depravity and complete humility, what these folks advocate is a form of slavery turned back on God. And then they call it grace. They say, I'm in control. I hold the cards. We're going to put... We're going to put God on the treadmill. And they call that grace because supposedly it's simpler than throwing it all on God. But it's really not. It's anti-grace, quote, grace teaching. What they advocate is a form of slavery turned back on God, and they call it grace. But it is anti-grace, quote, grace teaching. What it truly is, is a lesser grace altogether, and actually a demand thrown at God as a work of man. To disengage the heart of man in his special privilege of believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is to sever oneself from God's grace. For this is what arrogance does. Again, to disengage the heart of man in his special privilege of believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is to sever oneself from God's grace. For this is arrogance. To disengage from God's grace like that, is to imply a work of man. To disengage from God's grace is to imply a work of man. Because what's left? Lo and behold, those who proclaim what some call easy believism, those who proclaim this easy believism are actually promoting a work of man, though they call it grace. They have effectively turned the tables on God. And they call it grace. Is this a complicated subject to teach? Yeah. Indeed. Hence my latest blog titled, The Complexities of War. That's the one you're going to get this week. The Complexities of of war. The point I'm making is that a watered-down gospel actually promotes a religious arrogance that puts a premium on man's ability to enslave God, demanding an unholy response from him to save them, even in their arrogant departure from truth. That's what you get when you mess with the gospel. So please pray on all of this as it is fundamental 
through the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one that he taught his disciples to spread throughout the world. There are so many, I can't even get into it. There are so many secondary and tertiary perversions because of this plague, this attack on grace, that it's difficult to present you with an overall picture of it. I'm struggling right now. This is really hard to teach because the simple fact is a simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The simple fact is that we all recognize that we're depraved and we need a Savior. The simple fact is we can't do anything on our own. That if God just chooses as a sovereign, as our sovereign creator, to draw someone to himself, he better, by grace, enable the entire thing. Because we're dead as a doornail here to start with. There are... There are so many secondary and tertiary perversions because of that plague. It's difficult to present you with an overall picture of it. I'm struggling. That's why I'm asking you to pray on it. You don't have to understand all the little perversions. Maybe not even what I spoke of tonight. Some of you are like, I'm, I lost you about 15, 20 minutes ago. <laughs> I hope not. And if you did, go back and that's why we record these lessons. Again, I ask you to pray for clarity on this. Read the blog and you'll know why you might be confused right now. And just do me a favor and don't blame me. Don't blame me. With that said, with what remaining time we have, let's try to reconnect with our previous messages now. And I think I'll use our most recent pivot chapter to get us situated. Go to 1 John 3, 7. 1 John 3, 7. First John 3, verse 7. <clears throat> Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness, again, habit in view, is righteous, just as he is righteous. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruit, so that makes sense. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It's always the great litmus test, isn't it? Once we accept what the Bible has to say about the... All right, here's, another, here's another swear word. You ready? Behavior. What is the hang-up? What, what are we supposed to expect out of people that are saved, that are made new, that are animated in Christ Jesus? Bad behavior? What did John just say? The one who practices righteousness is what? Is righteous, is a saved person. That's it. What do we expect? Why is the behavior a bad word? You see, anti-grace, grace teaching, 
We'll tell you it is. We'll tell you good behavior is a work of man, you see. That's why there's no real evidence of saving faith. Some people will, some people won't. Once we accept what the Bible has to say about the behavior of a regenerate person, we recognize that some type of godly fruit will be evidenced in time. And according to the likes of James 2, our fruit is proof of our faith. I did not say these things. Up here on the board, let me give you James 2 up here. James 2, 17 and 18. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Did Ed Collins say that? No. That's James. That's Holy Scripture, inspired, God-breathed, by the same Holy Spirit who wrote and authored the rest of the Bible. Inspire the rest of the Bible. You can't throw things out because you don't like them. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. In other words, you mean to tell me a person can say they have faith? You mean a person can say they believe in Jesus Christ and it's fake? Yeah. As Scott mentioned on Tuesday, the Bible's full of those stories. Jeez, I wonder why. Why do you think there's so many warnings about false profession. Maybe, just maybe, it's a reality. Maybe, just maybe, it's always been a plague in the churches. You think that might be true? I think so. I think a lot of people say, I have saving faith. I think a lot of people say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and have never even reckoned with their own depravity. Because they're not interested. They're only interested in holding all the cards. Even with their sovereign creator. And the obnoxious and the arrogance is overwhelming in that posture. But that's the posture, believe it or not, that is actually propagated by the watered-down gospel. God forbid we offend anyone. I actually had that discussion with a pastor not that long ago. I don't want to offend anyone. Are you kidding me right now? You're a pastor and you're telling another pastor one who follows the rock of offense, that you don't want to offend anyone, go home. Go home and pray on that. What do you mean you don't want to offend anyone? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I'll give you the Amplified Classic up here on the board. So also faith, if it does not have works, deeds, and actions of obedience to back it up, by itself is destitute of power, inoperative, dead. Do you get it? Dead, still there on the ground. It doesn't matter what you say, you are still dead. (laughs) That's the kind of faith that that James is talking about. You You can lip flap all you want. But if you have zero deeds and actions of obedience to back it up, your faith is dead. It's destitute of power. But someone will say to you, then... 
You say you have faith, and I have good works. Now you show me your alleged faith, apart from any good works, if you can, and I, by good works of obedience, will show you my faith. So you think maybe, just maybe, God's trying to tell us that there's actually evidence of saving faith? You think maybe, just maybe, that is actually a true statement? Again, according to the likes of James 2, our fruit is proof of our faith. John wrote about this truth throughout 1 John. When we shift the conversation to a believer's existence here on earth, a believer now, while we must concede obedience, however, we cannot assume perfection. Will we bear fruit? You bet. Will we obey? You bet. Will we fail? Yep. Do we grow up over time? Do we become increasingly obedient? You bet. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. That's Philippians 1.6. I will complete a good thing I started in you. I promise to sanctify you. I'm not impotent. I have... I'm omnipotent. I have all the power. And if I can bring glory to myself through you, the regenerate person, then that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, in order to avoid utter exacerbation, we must understand that sanctification takes time. So I've been thinking about this all night. As I'm speaking, some people in here haven't been at it very long. So I don't want that, those individuals to, be, to feel oppressed and say, man, you know, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of um, obedience. I don't see a whole lot of fruit. Fine. The fact that you're here, that's fruit. How about that? The fact that you're humbly sitting here night after night is fruit. <clears throat> so to avoid utter exacerbation, we must understand that sanctification takes time. The seed of obedience is a heartfelt, Christ-like desire given to us at salvation that is manifest in a desire to be pleasing to our Lord. I'll give you a couple of <clears throat> verses here. First one, Jesus talking about himself. He's our perfect prototype. He's the only one that's ever been perfectly obedient. What do we see? John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's Jesus, right? He always did everything in perfect obedience. He's our prototype. We can't measure ourselves against him, but he's our direction setter. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition... Our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Where's that ambition come from? You didn't have it when you were dead. It was impossible for you to have it when you were dead because you were completely enraptured by sin itself. The only thing you were capable of doing was sin. So you were in, it was impossible for you to please Him. We've learned that in Scripture as well. Unless you have faith... It's impossible to please Him. Well, faith is a grace gift. But as a believer, our ambition is to be like Christ. 
Therefore, our ambition is to be pleasing. That ambition to obey, that desire to obey, was placed there. The new creature, that's all it wants to do. Our obedience pleases God, but our perspective on this must be correct in order that we derive joy from our obedience. This is another finer point I think I'll close with. I just got a couple of minutes. Our obedience pleases God, this we know. But our perspective on this must be correct in order that we derive joy from our obedience. What do I mean by that? Here's a summary principle from our previous messages up here on the board on obedience. God desires us to obey Him for our sakes so that we might enjoy His peace, joy, and life eternal in time. That's the perspective we need. In other words, it's not the, um, I just want to, you know, I just want to please my dad. Of course, that's the driving factor. I just want to please him and that's the end. I'll just be miserable over here, but at least he'll be happy. You know what I'm saying? I'll just have this miserable existence. Oh, oh. If God wants me to march, oh, I'll, just, I'll just, you know, be miserable. That's not God. That's not what he says. Jesus said, I want you to have my joy. So there has to be a perspective change, and that's part of growing up in the faith. As we tend to come to the faith with this perspective like an adolescent, like, well, you know, I guess I'll obey, you know, that thing. But when you have that perspective and that attitude, you miss out on the peace and the joy and even the experience of life eternal in time. Up here on the board, humble submission to the will of God, a.k.a. obedience, results in godly fruit, starting with life eternal, peace, joy, and love experientially. Hence, Jesus' words go quickly to John 15, 11. John 15, 11. That's, our God loves us so much. He just wants, heck, He just wants us to be, what, happy in time, Right? We're our worst enemy. We kick against the net, and we get even more tangled in it. Remember, I think it's subclio in the Greek. We kick against the net, trying to, like, you know, shed, shed the commands because we're idiots. And when we, the harder we try to shed the commands, the more we get tangled up. And when you're like this, not very comfortable. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So all I can say in closing up here on the board, there's no better day to obey God than today. There's no better day. Can't change yesterday. Tomorrow's not even real yet. So you can obey right now. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for delivering us as promised. Thank you for assuring us of our own faith by means of your Holy Spirit, Father. Thank you for all that you've given us this wonderful, grace-filled evening. We just ask for your blessings on all that we've learned as we take them back to our homes. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.